0: Hi, and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will focus on the importance of ethnic and racial identity in classrooms and the link between racial and ethnic identity and school-related behaviors. I am Teresa Cosgrove, and I will be the
1: host for today. I am Shelby Dewey And I'm Kathleen McCarron.
0: And I'm
2: Marina
3: Lindell.
0: So let's get started. So first, one of the things that we'll talk about is Eric Toshalos' book, Make Me, and specifically Chapter 9. In that chapter, Toshaw's asserts that classrooms are neither racially nor ethnically neutral. So thinking back to your own experiences um, in school as a student, how would you guys respond to this? What sorts of things did you encounter? And for some of us, it's been longer than others. Um, but as we think about even our, our own educational experiences, what are some things that come to mind?
3: Sure. I think I was in school the most recently. <laughs> um, I think Tushal brought up some really interesting points. And I have to say, I think he, I kind of agree with him that classrooms are generally not, uh, neither racially nor ethnically neutral. Uh, I was, I'm a person of color. And so I saw a lot of evidence that whiteness mattered the most. uh, And it was the most prevalent. Um, If you think about like holidays and like when schools were like off, like didn't have school it's all like the Christian holidays right like uh, we had time off for Christmas we had time off for Easter but then even here at the university um, this Tuesday and Wednesday I think our holidays um, uh, yeah I think it's definitely definitely not neutral for for anything Shelby did you find the names?
2: Um, Well, I thought you were speaking about Rosh Hashanah, which is also this upcoming week when we have Labor Day off, but not. That's probably
3: what I was talking about. The
2: following two days.
3: Something, it was in one of the emails that we got from the U, because usually the U has a very strict, like you have to show up to the first day of class um, policy. And we got something in in our um, email, like last week, sometimes saying because of the holiday, the you the first two days of classroom or classroom like time, they have to all the instructors are required to record. Um, and I don't know if it's because of the holiday or if it's because they're accounting for traveling. But regardless, I know they're at other schools, particularly in Madison. There was a big like push to like change the start date because they were having these kind of policies. So that's just one. Not even like in my past uh, schooling, but like my current schooling, where that's happened. More
0: the orientation around the white Christian. Yep. I should be white Christian, but just the Christian holidays. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, and you, Marina, I know you've had a bit of academic success. So, and you mentioned that you're you're a person of color too. How did you? You know, I, I'm really interested to know what is it what made you continue kind of pushing forward academically relative to some of the things that we've read about in the text for this week, which are more uh, about student resistance. So, you know, and and students perhaps not performing well academically for various reasons. So I'm just really curious um, what it was in your experience that had you um, staying more than afloat, but really powering ahead academically.
3: Well, thank you. I'm not sure if I would say that I have like all that academic su- success, but one thing that I did have was a really great family life. My parents were very supportive. They were all about, you know, grieving to us, me and my sibling. Um, we were both adopted um, as infants. So I have no recollection of anything before other than my two loving parents, because um, they're my mom and dad, uh, mm-hmm. first and foremost, but they were really, really into reading and giving us all that bedtime read aloud we had strong academic um support I think and I had great teachers that's the other thing too I had amazing teachers it wasn't my necessarily my English language arts teachers that inspired me to go into uh teaching but actually it was my is my chem teacher. It was one of them was my chem teacher. One of them was my, uh, media specialist, mm-hmm. which I suppose is a little bit of ELA, but uh, mostly science, right? Like it's the STEM classes. Uh, those teachers really inspired me. I actually have a STEM degree or like the mm-hmm. certificate from high school. I took all of the STEM classes that I possibly could. I loved, I love science. Uh, I'm not really great at math, but I pushed through math and did AP Calc. And again, I had a great teacher for AP Calc. Um, but yeah, it is really that science teacher that did it for me that reaffirmed sure. going into teaching. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question, but
0: sorry. Yeah, no, that that, that no, that's that's great evidence in, as to how um, solid, good, strong teachers uh, really can make a difference for students who may otherwise feel um, alienated in other circumstances. That's really interesting. Um, Shelby or Kathleen, you know, what are your thoughts um, if you think back to experiences in school? I mean, you know, I think about mine as a white person and I think about how um, those students who tended to be in the upper tracks did tend to be white. So my, you know, I can't speak for being anything other than white but I can certainly speak to the fact that, you know at least anecdotal evidence in my school would put um, fewer white kids in the lower tracks and would put fewer white kids in the discipline office for repeated violations um, of whatever rules teachers felt uh, were violated.
2: Yeah, I can speak about my experience um, also as a white student at a primarily, well, I can't speak for how all my classmates and teachers identified, but there were no People of color who were known to me in my elementary school, in the staff, the faculty, or, or students. Um, so that's you know an assumption I'm making, but um, no no one who externally identified or identified to me that they were not white um, for I think the first five out of six years that I attended that school, and I actually um, had a chance to look briefly over the um, one of the upcoming readings by Beverly Tatum for this class. And um, it was all about like white identity formation and the ways that whiteness as a racial or ethnic identity is super hidden. And I would definitely say that that was my experience um, first and foremost when I was in that elementary school setting where there was like no uh, other of whiteness even being discussed or even being positioned as other it was just like not present not, there mm-hmm. was nothing about it so everything that was going on in terms of school culture in terms of um, the things marina was speaking about like having christmas off like it never occurred to me that there was anything anyone who didn't celebrate christmas or anything else to celebrate besides christmas probably until i was in middle school um, so yeah, all of that was very, my own ethnic identity formation was very hidden to me, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really, really interesting too. Yeah. I, uh, going to a Catholic grade school and a Catholic college, everything really revolved around, you know, Christmas and Easter.
1: I can talk about a relatively similar experience to that. Um, my high school was, I went to a Catholic high school and, um, Our diversity wasn't so bad as like a teacher once described uh, interviewing at a school. And when they asked about diversity, they went, oh, you mean Owen, the one. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't quite that bad, but I would say each of our classes was about 200 students. And there would be maybe a dozen in students in each that would identify as anything non-white. Um, yeah. yeah, and that, <laughs> that's on the high side. A dozen, a dozen is being really generous. Um, the uh, minority at my Catholic high school was the Lutherans. That's, that, I mean, that's sort of what it was. Um, so that did lead to exploring those other identities and other you know, cultures was in some ways kind of awkward. Um, in like English or history classes when, you know, subjects would turn to slavery or colonization, and we would be talking about it and debating about it. And it inevitably, at some point, someone would raise, you know, the subject of like, look, are we really the ones who should be talking about this? We're a bunch of middle to upper class white kids sitting in a room talking about this. Is this our place? And we get kind of like, uncomfortable and quiet we're like but we should not or i don't know um actually the best experience that we had was we had a uh religion teacher who taught a world religions class and she would do deep dives into hinduism and buddhism and shintoism and all these different things and like really going in depth and exploring um the ways that, what religions had in common across the board, where their differences were, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, she retired right before I could take her class. I know this because my sister had her and would talk about her frequently. So all of that, to, to bring that back home, convers- yes, our, our school was very overtly white, I, it was not neutral, it was white. And the few moments that we had to sort of fight against that were awkward and far between.
0: Yeah. No, I, I again too, just listening to what you're saying about that one teacher who was willing to, or had the, the mindset, the appropriate mindset to help educate students beyond kind of their current experiences is um, so, so important and it's it's really a shame that there aren't more teachers like that uh, or and that you didn't have a chance to have her. But uh, it's, it's you know, as we're talking about um, those who identify as white, it makes me think of um, John Ogbu, how he was talking about kind of the voluntary immigrants uh, versus the involuntary immigrants, you know? And so a lot of what drives the culture and education, if we were to look at Ogbu's terminology and we'll get dive a little more into him in a second but you know it's it's very voluntary immigrant driven right kind of the, those who identify as white and that that sort of culture. but that also makes me think about um, the involuntary immigrants and and Agbu's theory and again, we'll dive more into this we can pick it apart a little bit uh, but his theory about um, acting white and you know poor academic performance being, Related to or correlating with um, this fear of acting white. And, you know, that, uh, you know, we we think about that, we could think about that Noguera article, if you guys remember reading that for this this week, um, Joaquin's Dilemma. Um, Pedro Noguera's article was Joaquin's Dilemma, Understanding the Link Between Racial Identity and School-Related Behaviors. And Noguera talks about his own son, Joaquin, who was a strong student before his. Grades fell precipit- precipitously in high school. Um, so if we want to look at Agbu's perspect- perspective, which would say he's not doing well because Joaquin isn't doing well because he doesn't want to act white, you know, how would we respond to that? We know there are problems, there are some problematic aspects of Agbu's theories. Um, but- you know, what issues would you take with that statement?
1: I My first thought is that it's an oversimplification.
2: Sure.
1: Um, while there could be some individuals who feel that way, I think it's a mistake to ascribe that motivation to massive swaths of the population. One of the things that I've wondered about um, Sort of talking about this, and and when he was describing Joaquin's um, problems too, is that there is a certain pressure, I think, put on certain certain minorities to do to code switch, to have the there there's the way you talk at home, and then there's the way that you are supposed to be talking in school, and the teenage years, it's all about finding your own identity and figuring out who you are. And I was, and I'm wondering how many students at that time are sort of like, but I'm, I'm ha- having, are being forced to cut between those two identities and they don't like it. And they are, and maybe it's more rebelling against that uh, conflict in between with the code switching. I don't know. This is is not a fully formed thought yet, but it was something that I, uh, it was a thought that I had while reading.
2: Yes, Kathleen, and jumping off what you said about it just being an oversimplification, I think that's also what uh, Noguera kind of said was that when he was researching um, and working with other high school students that kind of like Noguera and Fordham were stating that students would be socially ostracized for performing, uh, students of color would be socially ostracized for performing well in school because their peers would ascribe that as them trying to act white and Noguera's research was that that was just one of the possible things that yes that happened in some contexts and in some social groups and also in others there was more of the code switching you were talking about and even uh, Noguera spoke about himself as someone who had kind of one identity in the classroom and another outside of the classroom and then still other groups of students of color might want to challenge the stereotypes against them that they wouldn't perform well academically and would all kind of um yeah be working kind of extra hard to subvert their, maybe their teachers or their peers' expectations of them. And so really saying, oh, this is what's always happening whenever students of color struggle in school was a huge oversimplification (laughs) of what might be happening socially or in terms of their individual identity formation.
3: Yeah. And you both mentioned, but like, yeah, your teenage years and really your young adult years, right? I mean, I'm 22 and I feel I still can relate to a lot of these uh, feelings of like, wait a minute, who am I? Um, what's happening here? How do I fit in? I'm also very white passing. So it's even, I feel like it's can be even more confusing too. Um, yeah. Just wanted to add that in there.
2: No,
0: that, yeah, that's a great point. And it, it really is. I mean, just you layer on the the challenges of being a, t- a teen, as a standalone issue, layered with so many other things at play, um, it's it's really hard to just attribute it to you know not wanting to be acting white or something else. And so, so on that note, um, all of the readings this week have spoken to um, how marginalizing messages in education and in society. Um, uh, particularly by educators, you know, the the educational institution, and oftentimes peers, contribute to students' resistance. And that resistance, you know, again, as we've ta- you know we've talked about, and we talked about it in the last podcast, and we talked about it throughout class, and even a little bit here. Um, how do we, as future teachers, encourage rather than try to trample on? Ethnic and racial pride, how do we help our future students celebrate who they are be who they are and be that well and. That means being who they are well academically socially just all around good students good human beings, how do we do that, especially we as you know, three of us um, identifying as white, you know, how do, but how do we do that as, as teachers? How do we, I think,
3: yeah, I think that one of the ways that we can do this is by providing a lot of windows and mirrors into, I don't know if you've heard of those phrases, but providing a lot of opportunities for students to see themselves in their academic lives, right? Like it's teaching multicultural children's lit. It's talking about, you know, the hard topics, the social justice movements that are going on. And it doesn't matter if we're not social studies teachers, because I think all three of us or all four of us can agree really that most likely all of us are going (laughs) to have very social justice oriented classrooms. Um, We're going to teach those kind of books. We're going to teach, you know, how to treat others with kindness, no matter what, like that golden rule um, and providing them the windows into the different lives that surround all of us is super important. And then also providing, you know, being super honest and open with our students as well about how we feel about our racial and ethnic identity, how we feel that those, whatever that means to us, affects our daily lives and affects our academic lives. I think that's one of the ways that we can at least, you know, (laughs) make teenage And yet, adult, adolescent life a little bit, a little bit more easy, and a little bit more ready to accept Mm -hmm. because it's hard. It's growing up is
2: hard. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that, Marina. And also, I'm thinking now of a reading that we read for another class. Maybe you all can help me remember what class or what who the author was, Um, but where um, they were talking about the really the importance of. Having genuine cultural connections with students. Um, one of the examples was about a teacher who had craftspeople in residence come that were like parents and family members and neighbors of students and come and share about their own skills and talents and careers um, in the classroom to kind of, you know, we've talked a lot about like real world connections and experiences and um, like the importance of having that be general, uh, genuine and community based having, um, I think that author described it as not importing professionals or experts from some corporate world or some city nearby, but instead having people who are already in community in relationship with the students in the classroom, um, be brought in and kind of um, designated or um, signaled as role models within the community. So that's coming to my mind. And also the ways that, um, you know, I am a white woman teacher and I can't change that. And the fact that I'll be um, different in terms of race and ethnicity from many of my students, but what are the parts of my life and relationship and community building that I can make genuine connections with. So I'm thinking about um, where do I, will I live in relation to where my students live? And what will I do outside of school that is connecting with the same community that my students are connecting with? So um, like, where do I go even to grocery shop or to community events? How do I spend my time outside of school and like making genuine connections in the community where I'm working feels like one way that I can make more genuine connections with my students.
0: I love that you talk about being in the community with your students, Shelby. And I, I, I love that for two reasons. One, and I think about this growing up and even with my kids now, the teacher, teachers are these mysterious creatures, right? Like teachers do not exist outside of the school. You know, when you, when you happen to run into your teacher, or when my kids happen to run into a teacher outside of school, it's like, oh my gosh, this person actually has a life. Maybe they're with a member of their family, but it's this really mysterious, almost enigmatic interaction, right? Because, because teachers are these sort of standalone creatures, at least in the minds of students. So that's what that just that alone um, is makes me really excited that you want to be in the community. I mean that just just that kind of breaking down that barrier for students and teachers in general is huge. But then also, you know, to the point about really getting into shopping where your students shop and where their families shop and getting into that community whether you live there or not. And that makes me think of how Isla in in cultures and communities uh, had talked about seeing her students in stores all the time, and that makes the teachers so much more approachable. Um, and I for one, but I think it also helps us just to get outside of our own privileged world. You know, if we think about white privilege or the privileges that have been we, have been afforded to us. Yeah, comfort into the real world and. Be
3: with our students, be with them outside of the classroom, because then they're more likely to come talk to us. Or for those of us like me who maybe don't feel super comfortable being in the same uh, immediate city city, the first couple of years, at least, because I would like to, you know, work on my teacher uh, person, (laughs) teacher (laughs) personality, like at least being somewhere close or acknowledging the stuff that goes in the community Right, like if I mean, chances are some of us will not be able to live like in the city that we're teaching for like hundreds of various various of reasons. But like being aware of like the stuff that goes on in the community, uh, if that's going to like football games, uh, or dance competitions, or whatever, um, speech, debate, musicals, all that good stuff, um, or if there's something that's going on in the community uh, and that's like not. A good thing that's going on in the community being aware of that and being like on top of it so that you can have those those discussions with, with your kids being like hey you know i don't really like live here like i mean it may seem like i live here but i don't actually live in the city but i know what's going on maybe students are more likely to help come and talk to us about the problems that they're facing um just like both of you all said
0: yeah and i think at, very, at a very basic level go to the athletic events, right? Go to the events that students are participating in. I mean, as again, at minimum, it drives me nuts when teachers don't go to those things. And I appreciate that teachers have lives outside of school too, but I also think your job as a teacher doesn't end at three o'clock when the bell rings. And the theater. And the the theater, yes, and the theater, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Um, just, you were reminding me, I was talking with my mom not that long ago, and she said that there used to be um, a rule that I think it was the St. Paul police had to live within the bounds of St. Paul, and it was, they, they wanted their police officers to be local, and that once that rule changed, the policing changed, and... Not, not, not for the better. So yeah, it's uh, community involvement is definitely important in all, in all aspects.
0: You know, and, and something else, you know, if we talk about, you know, in addition to being present in our students' communities really trying to find additional ways to connect with them outside of the classroom um, to be more approachable individuals, Um, you know, another way I think we could work to celebrate and help students of all identities feel they belong and are welcome in our classrooms is to even, you know, from a fundamental level, starting out our year, going through norms, kind of like we've done in 5441 this week or last week, I guess. Kind of a norms discussion, discussion of what are the things we want to cover this year? How do we all, so talking about one, how do we all interact and how do we respect each other and what are, our, what are our expectations for ourselves within you know X classroom? But then two, what are the topics? What are the issues? What are the things that are on kids' minds? So that as we're thinking about English and language arts, um, how can we use the content we are teaching to further connect with them. All right, well, let's switch gears everybody and tackle a difficult topic for a few minutes. And to Chalice's book, he talks about how race contributed to disciplinary, disciplinary outcomes, independent of socioeconomic status and that he was summarizing that, um, summarizing some studies that he speaks to in the book How do you respond to that? What does that make you think or feel?
2: I'm reminded of what you were speaking about, Teresa, earlier that that was true in your experience that students of color were uh, disciplined more often. Um, And one thing that um, is also standing out to me is something else that Isla shared, which was that they had never sent a student to out of the classroom, I think. and i think that's definitely a goal that i have because number one it just seems exclusionary and like is not helping you build genuine relationship with perhaps a student who needs it the most and also we know so much about inherent biases that you know it's helpful to be aware of them but you still have them i still have them so even if i feel like I'm not trying to um, kind of privilege the behaviors of white students over non-white students. I still have the inherent biases that I might do that. And so it would be better to just avoid sending students out of the classroom for both of those reasons.
1: Yeah, outside of like actual um, physical danger, like all of a sudden fists are flying. Yeah, I don't see using sending students out of the room for a disciplinary thing. It seems um, a subject, a a hot topic with toddlers is time outs versus time ins, and um, taking those opportunity. Like, if if there needs to be a cool off, there's a cool off. But otherwise, like, no. Clearly, you're acting out means that you need more attention, not less. And so i need to find out what that need is and try and fulfill that need as opposed to like no just get out of my face as much as we occasionally would like to no, wait, it's, toddlers not students it's, yeah no no but it's so
0: interesting that you bring up toddlers kathleen because you're right with toddlers we often have a little kids we have a, we take a different stance with them or those of us who work hard with all the patients in the world trying to parent um, positively, we have learned and have been trained to focus more on, okay, if my child's acting out, that means that child needs more attention. So why is it then by the time we get to middle school and high school, you know, the, the child psychology view or the educational view is no longer respond to the outburst with positive intent and instead it becomes respond to the outburst with punishment which with children little children we would never do um and it's, so you say saying that just it's so interesting that at some point over time it became okay to respond completely differently to high schoolers and middle schoolers than it then we do then we respond to little people even though they're still children when they're 18
2: one thing that jumps out to me about that is just the the group environment that and that's why i mentioned the individual relationships being so important of course toddlers are sometimes in group environments like daycares and preschools but what you were kind of describing teresa sounded more from the parental view, which would have a much smaller group, maybe one-on-one or maybe a couple of kids, right? And then when you translate that to a middle school or high school classroom, maybe there are 30 students and one adult. And I think that's one of the big challenges that, I mean, there are many challenges of being one-on-one with a toddler as well, of course, but one of the challenges that we'll face in the classroom is that as much as we believe that that student- needs our attention and support and care, deciding and acting in the moment on how to how to do that when we have 29 others in the room, I think will be something that we'll all have to navigate each day.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point too. For sure. Our own fight or flight response kicks in, right? As the, the kids, the resisting students fight or flight mode kicks in and How do we, as the adult in the room, try to catch ourselves, you know, and Shelby, you mentioned earlier, even acknowledging your own, our own inherent biases, because we have them. We all do. And we have to be
3: particularly aware of those and call ourselves to the carpet on those. Yeah. And, and also just like being aware that like, there's nothing that we can necessarily do about our inherent biases, except for acknowledging them. Mm -hmm. Um, and working hard to understand why we have them. And then also being super upfront with our students. Hey, I realized that what I did the other day, whether it's X, Y, or Z was not cool. This is why Um, having those, being willing to have those honest and raw conversations with our kids, I think is gonna be super helpful. Yes,
0: it's another aspect of us demonstrating to our students that we're human you know, seeing them outside of the classroom, um, in, you know, in the community or at after school events, theater, sporting events and whatnot. And then also absolutely being willing to apologize when we screw up because we will, I will, I will. I already know that now. In fact, when we've been talking about setting norms in these different classes that we've had so far, um, classroom norms and how we call each other in for different things. In each of these classes, I think, oh, I can't wait to do this because I know I will be holding up, uh, hold myself to these same standards and it'll be at least a little easier for me as a teacher to be able to say, look guys, I, I just completely violated for last week or yesterday or whatever. I, I, I screwed up on the rule we all agreed to and I'm sorry because the more we model that and be honest with ourselves, you know, hopefully the more the students will be too and we can um overall try to turn the trend around right you know to so that we're not we're taking a different approach to discipline when it's appropriate and that we're also acknowledging any sort of resistance and and giving students the attention they need as hard as it's going to be especially in our first few months or years while we figure out who we are as teachers
3: right Totally. For sure. And as humans. And as humans. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Well, on that note, I'd say we covered a lot of interesting topics and information in this podcast today. I think what we're walking away from um, one is continue to acknowledge our humanness, acknowledge our biases, and also acknowledge and find and explore ways for helping our students celebrate who they are rather than um, feel that they don't belong in the classroom and help them to become the good people that they already are and deserve to continue feeling like they are. And so with that, we'll sign off. Again, I'm your host, Teresa Cosgriff.
1: I'm Shelby Deweese. Kathleen McCarron.
3: And I am Marina Lindell. Thank you for listening.
1: Bye.